Hi, this is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Thank you for joining me in my lovely little corner of the internet on this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about autism, but not just autism itself. We're going to do a lot of dialogue talking to actual autistic people, getting their perspectives on autism and how it's looked at in society. We're also going to be talking to providers who provide services for autism and how they kind of see and approach autism. And we're also going to be talking to family members and get their viewpoint on what it's like to have a family member with autism. And we're going to have dialogues with all different kinds of people, including those. Some of those dialogues could get a little deep. We might talk about some some touchy subjects like racism and access to resources. But these are all topics that we know need to be talked about. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and I'll talk to you soon. Hello, everyone. This is Angel Wilson. Welcome back to Spark Up in my little corner of the podcast world. We are getting down to the near the end of this first season, and I can't believe we've gotten so many episodes down already. And um, for this episode, I'm bringing on a guest. I love when I get to have guests because we get to have great dialogue and you guys get to learn and get introduced to other folks in our community here in Palm Beach County. So uh, my guest for today is Christian. He is uh, head of Look Up Therapy, and um, this is a Black-owned therapy group that handles all different kinds of therapies. And this is one of the things that I love about bringing folks like Christian on board is because we really, as a community, when I say community, I mean Black community, really have to highlight and bring on board those of us that are in this field that are doing work because there's not a lot of us and me and him are going to discuss that a lot today there's not a lot of us in this field and we need to have more of us and so whenever i find someone who is who's you know of my of my group of my community and are do in the same field as me of course i'm going to try to bring them on and highlight them so i am going to without further ado i am going to turn it over to christian for him to introduce his organization and tell you a bit about what he does. Hello, everyone. My name is Christian Sannon with Look Up Therapy. Um, it's a pleasure just to be here with Angel and Spark and all of you guys listening in. Um, I'm with Look Up Therapy, like I said before. We do occupational therapy, ABA therapy, and um, speech therapy. We're located in West Palm Beach. We work with kids um, with ASD, also ADHD, and other diagnoses. Um, we're looking to continue to influence the field and make sure that we're providing quality therapy for parents and for our clients. Our vision is kind of to continue to spread um, just ethical, sound ABA therapy specifically to start um, and teach everyone how we can collaborate with other professionals and providers to really give our community a solid um, product. Awesome. Tell me a bit, because I know this is something that comes up a lot with um, with uh, families is as far as like insurance goes, like in general, what insurances uh, does LookUp take? Great question. So we take all Medicaid, so big, small, um, all of them from CMS to WellCare um, to Humana. We also take regular Humana, Aetna, um, as well as, what should I say, Cigna. We do not take United Healthcare. That's something that we're working on, but um, we are able to do a single case agreement if there is ever a client that might need our services um, in our demographic. Awesome, awesome. 
So I, I always kind of like say that if I bring on an or a provider, because that's often one of the first questions we get is, hey, do you take my insurance? <laughs> that's like number one question. Um, the other thing, I know that you guys, you mentioned speech therapy, occupational therapy, ABA. Can you explain a little bit of what occupational therapy is? Because I a lot of people get confused when they hear that because they think, oh, isn't that like for people who have been injured at work and need to learn how to like hold things again? You know, what does that have to do with my child with autism? So can you give a little bit of, I've explained it before, but I want to hear it from your viewpoint as well of what <laughs> occupational therapy is. My view might be a little bit biased because I'm married to an occupational therapist. So I know a little bit more than the average Joe in the field, um, but they focus on sensory input, sensory output, emotional regulation. So helping your child be able to regulate when they're upset or sad. Um, also, it helps with um, handwriting or executive functioning. So learning how to do certain um, activities or tasks and steps, such as dressing themselves or brushing their teeth, or maybe even simply just walking in a straight line. A lot of kids have um, different challenges, and I wouldn't even just say kids, individuals, because even for myself, if I needed occupational therapy, I can do it as well. Um, so I don't ever limit anyone, but it's just a great field um, to really learn and understand what we need sensory-wise. Uh, unfortunately, the schools really don't focus on that too much. They're more so focused on the academic side of things, um, whereas if you find a private or out-of-school occupational therapist, they can help you with a lot more. That has been a big, I think, like, um, I won't say thorn in my side, but just like a uh, thing when it comes to school, the fact that they don't, um, they don't really, uh, they don't put occupational therapy in high priority when in actuality, especially when it comes to kids in the autism spectrum, that sensory part is a huge piece. And so many of the behaviors that I see teachers and administrators complain about could easily be, you know, rectified if some sort of sensory plan was put in place or sensory diet was put in place. And um, I don't know if that's your experience with it as well, that sensory tends to play a huge part of it. Yes, I agree. It definitely does. And I would also advise, do not listen to everyone about sensory. Sometimes someone might prescribe a sensory diet or procedure that might put your child into overload or not give them enough sensory input that they need. It's always important to seek professional assistance when creating these type of plans. Um, one example is like those, what do you call the little popper things that kids fidget with all the time? Oh, the little popper, like, the, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I have a few clients that have that, but they don't need it. Um, so there's a difference. If you don't really need it, there's no need to giving that child that access because now it can become a potential behavior where they always need to fidget with something in their hands that they didn't have before. So it's very tricky, but it's it's an amazing field. You bring up a good point of have of understanding exactly what sensory needs the child has and be able to, like you said, have someone who's experienced and knows how to create a good sensory profile and understands these are the child's sensory needs and that, you know, not every child, you know, flaps their hands. Not every child needs, uh, has this particular sensitivity to certain foods. Not every child has a fascination with water. A lot of them do, but not every child does. And I think it's important to also, you know, highlight that each child is different and each sensory diet or plan that's thought up should be for that child. There is definitely, in this field, there's no blanket one size fits all, in my opinion. Not at all. Not at all. I even noticed that in ABA as well. 
a lot of times what happens is that we get these standardized assessments that we do, but a lot of it doesn't get tailored to the specific client. Um, so that's another thing as a parent or a caregiver, you want to make sure that you take the time to look at the plan to understand what's written and why they chose those specific goals to work on. I literally said that in the last like uh, podcast that I recorded. That was something that I said with regards to like things to look out for in a good like provider is make sure you understand what's being written and told to you. It is is so important because a lot of times, and, and this is in all of the fields, ABA, even in developmental speech, occupational, we have our own jargon within those fields. And it's real easy for us to get in our heads and get into the jargon and realize, wait, people outside of our field don't talk like this. <laughs> like they don't use these terms. And if you start seeing a parent's eyes glazing over as you're talking, you probably need to stop and rewind and reword kind of how you're saying it. So I agree like 100%. Um, what is uh, ABA or Applied Behavioral Analysis to you? Like what's your, I guess, definition of it? That's a great question. Well, to me, I would say the whole focus would be to decrease maladaptive behaviors, but also give them an opportunity to develop skills to learn how to cope through behaviors that they cannot change. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things and also teaching new skills. So there are certain skills that um, that they might struggle with, such as socializing with their peers. So we might focus on turn taking um, with the therapist first and then generalize it with between the parents and then to other peers their age. Also, I think also it's um, the pairing aspect is what we call it, is building that rapport with your client. It's so important in the ABA field, too. Uh, a lot of times some people try to rush into displacing demand. Um, bad idea, bad idea. There's going to be a lot of behaviors that get increased very quickly. So you might want to take like the first week or two just to focus in on getting to know the client and then also getting to know the family because the dynamic is so different for each family. Now, that's a very important distinction because I and I get to kind of come in and say, OK, this is what how I was introduced to it. I remember having BCBAs tell me, oh, no, you can jump in day one and just start working like right then. <laughs> And I would be like, no, I'm pretty sure we should build rapport first. <laughs> like, like, I think we need to get to know the child and the child needs to get comfortable with you first before you can start just putting demands basically on the child. So um, thank you for saying that, because even like re more recently, I've seen that kind of pop up. How, again, some BCBAs do not really, I, quite frankly, I don't think they really focus enough on the relationship building side of it. And um, that becomes very detrimental because I think that can lead to a lot of the more adverse behaviors that the child has toward the approach itself, toward ABA itself, not just like that actual person, but just like, I don't want to do anything with this because you haven't taken the time to build any kind of trust with me, quite frankly. I 100% agree. And I think that makes us a little bit different. Well, a lot different than other agencies and uh, organizations that are out there um, with the personal experience that I have and also my wife have as we really value the interpersonal relationship, making sure that we understand and know our clients and enjoy the presence of our clients. Um, that's one of the biggest things for me when I staff an RBT, I wanna make sure that they enjoy their client. If it's a bad fit, it's a bad fit, then we try someone else to make sure that they can enjoy those moments because sessions can last three to six hours sometimes if you're doing in-school um, therapy. So imagine spending three hours with someone that you don't get along with, right? So both people would definitely be frustrated and you won't get anywhere or anything done, you know? 
What do you think about the the uh, concept of, I understand like in the school environment because it's it's school and you're in the environment at that time. I've always had like a question mark in my head about um, having like 40 hours a week for like a two-year-old. <laughs> because all I keep, the, granted, I think there should be more than like one hour a week. I don't think that's enough to really do anything either. But I question like the 40 hour a week idea because of the fact of just like one, it's a toddler, you're giving them pretty much a full time job. And um, two, at, at what point do we kind of incorporate and have the family take more, uh, you know, take more of a, a lead? Because ideally, during those 40 hours, you would have the family involved in it. But unfortunately, I know from personal experience, that isn't always the case, either because the parents are working or because or the caregivers are working or they just feel, oh, no, I'm just going to hand you the kid and you just go do this thing for this many hours. And I, you know, they treat it more like respite than they do like intervention. Um, How like I'm trying to think of how to ask, ask the question, like like I think that's just something that's always stumped me about ABA, like why this this insane amount of time for kids like so young, I guess would be like the question. Uh, I'd say for me and myself and my organization, if I feel that there's a need that a child needs to 40 hours, it might be because their behaviors are so severe and that the parents are unable to even um, manage them or don't have the tools to manage them. Or they might be delayed language wise where we can come in there and really use what we call NET, which is natural environment training to really go in there and spend time with them, walk around in the neighborhood. Maybe they go to the park. Maybe they're going to publics where we assist them and teach them different environments. So it's, it's kind of more so the structure of how you're using the hours versus, okay, you have 40 hours for the week, but it's all in home, eight hours a day, just sitting around with the kid, maybe playing on the iPad or something. But if you're structuring it with the goal of saying, okay, he's potentially, or she's going to go to um, VPK, or any other type of program, then you might want to structure those hours accordingly. That's kind of my vision with it. I'm so happy that you also mentioned the NET, Natural Environment Training, because that incorporates what I was initially trained in. And that, to me, that's like mm -hmm. the ideal, is taking the naturalistic developmental approach and merging it with some of the ideas and strategies and approaches in ABA and bringing together the best of both worlds. To me, that would be like the ideal setup. And, um, yeah, I've seen cases where that's not, that's not what's happening like at all. That's kind of why I asked the question about like, for example, 40 hours, cause not every kid needs 40 hours. And I get worried when it's like a, a child that doesn't have, you know, for a child, like you mentioned, the ones that have like really severe behaviors are a danger to themselves or to, to others because of the behaviors. I totally get that. Especially in the beginning, you're going to need a lot of intervention to help kind of calm those down and, and, and help the child work through those. But for a child that's like, you know, not, you know, doesn't need as many supports. I've always been confused. Okay. Why are you giving this child 40 hours, <laughs> 40 hours a week? I don't, you know, understand. And I think it comes back. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I guess the answer to that would be realistic, right? So it's a money thing too. Right. So and then also caregivers really do push for the maximum hours because they fully don't understand the services that are being provided. I think that's one of the biggest things, too, where sometimes we'll we'll have families that say, oh, I need only in school services. I'm just like, OK, that's great. But then how does he or she behave at home and how does he or she behave 
in the community settings. Because if we're only focusing in school, maybe the behaviors will be great in school. Right. But I guarantee in a few months, you're probably going to complain about behaviors in home. And we have to make sure that we're divvying up those hours where we can adequately provide services that's going to help them for not just the moment, but for the rest of their lives. Agree wholeheartedly. So um, thank you for, for, for saying that. I appreciate the fact that I love where, uh, when I see a, an ABA agency in particular that um, understands some of these very concerns that I've brought up. It's not just, I don't bring them up because it's just, un, you know, concerns that I've had. It's things I've heard from the autistic community, actual autistic people, because um, I'm sure you know, there are tons of autistic people who have huge uh, reservations about ABA. And I think it's because they had a similar introduction to what I had, which was this really uh, narrow minded, um, you know, I don't even know how to explain it at this point, because I would just go off on a rant. But it, it, it was this very narrow minded, very like this way or the highway kind of approach and from what i saw it did for a lot of kids not all but for quite a few of them it did more harm than good and it completely kind of you know i said oh i see why you know autistic people have an issue with this with this approach um i do though see that there are more like you in the field now who are saying you know what no it's a we need to go into the different environments that this child is going to be in and work uh, we need to make sure that we have the right, um, you know, supports in place in, you know, across the board. We need to have parent and caregiver involvement. Ideally, if we can get teacher involvement, too, that'd be great. As well. <laughs> that, that'd be great as well, you know, ideally. And it's good to see more of that coming out in the ABA field now. It gives me hope for the field um, because, like I said, um, my introduction to it was quite uh, dark. Like I, the person like the head person that was like introducing it to me basically told me that they hated kids. <laughs> and, yeah. Your, your, your reaction, yeah, your reaction was pretty much mine too. And I was like, then why are you in it? They were strictly in it for money. And like mm. you kind of said, you hinted at that. There are some that are in it for that. I think in any of the fields, there are people that are in it just for that just for that reason. So even though I kind of brought this up a little bit in the last um, episode that I recorded, I'll ask you, what do you think uh, parents or families should, you know, be on the lookout for both red flags and green flags when it comes to finding a good ABA provider? I would say the first thing is uh, a guarantee. If you hear any provider guarantee that your child will be talking will be able to function typically for the rest of their life or anything like that, I would be um, very nervous to put my child there because there's really no guarantee in our field. We try our best to make sure that we get them to the best that they can with their potential um, and with the systems that we create with the support of the caregivers and other providers. I think that's one of them. Also, um, the intake process. Are you just filling out forms and not knowing what the service is going to look like? Are they running away from questions um, as far as like how many hours that you might get or what sessions might look like? Are, you know, they have to be fully open and transparent. I think that's one of the biggest things. If you want to know how much it costs for billing the services, um, your insurance, these are questions that you have the freedom to ask and you should ask because it, it, it's your child. Um, it's your loved one, and you want to make sure that you're always advocating for them 
regardless of who the provider is in their specialty or their experience. What's kind of like, a, and you, you'd probably be able to tout your own, like look up therapy for this, but what are some of the, the green flags? Things like, oh, this is a good organization for me to work with or a good provider for me to work with. I think there's certain keywords. So um, training, right? You want to always make sure that the staff is trained. Um, also, understanding that this provider is coming in to be part of your family and to work with your child and with you um, to get to their goal. I think that's one of the other things that I owe for myself as well. Like I said, my sister, um, she's on the spectrum. So if I'm ever looking for services, I try to hear key words like, okay, are they, do they really care about what we need or what we see? Or are they telling me what's the best thing that we should do based upon their own experience without ever seeing her? So they have to make sure that they're patient enough to listen. Um, also, they're not rushing you off the phone or rushing the assessment process just to get service started. So I think those are key. Awesome. Changing the subject slightly because you brought up your um, sister. Was she kind of like the inspiration for you going into this field and starting Look Up Therapy? I would say yes and no. It's kind of an interesting process of how I got started. Um, initially, growing up, I always wanted to be a physician. I knew that I had dreams and ambition to eventually work with um, other children that are similar to my sister, um, either creating a hospital or a clinic or something where I can dedicate time. But as you know, in life, things happen, you get older, time runs out. So um, one of my close friends at the time, she was studying to become a BCBA. And at the time I was working in corporate America and I was just bored, you know, sitting at a desk, typing away countless hours, um, just felt like I didn't know myself. I didn't feel like I was meeting, you know, my personal goals or needs. And um, she was like, you know, you should try something called an RBT. And I was like, what's an RBT? So I took time. I Googled. She kind of told me what was going on. And I took a part-time gig um, working after my nine to five with my first client. Um, And then from there, I just kind of like fell in love with the process. And I was blessed enough to have a really good company to start with, where the um, supervisor really invested time with me uh, and taught me exactly what I needed to to do to make sure that I'm providing quality service. Nice. That's speaking from someone who's had both the good and the bad supervisors. I think that's important for anyone kind of coming into uh, who's interested in coming to this field. Cause I have had uh, quite a few people since I started like the podcast journey in particular, I've had people kind of come like, Hey, I'm kind of interested in doing uh, this. I, I have one who's now kind of uh, going through the process of becoming a, a, a parent coach, kind of like just helping parents kind of navigate kind of more the emotional side of going through and how to kind of get access to resources and things like that. And um, I think it's important to have good uh, mentors for those of us who are coming into this field, which kind of segues me into kind of the next um, the next subject, which is about kind of our community's presence in this field. Um, so when you um, came on, I know when I first came in, I saw I saw some of us kind of like on the levels as far as like uh, working with other nonprofits, being kind of like 
therapists or developmental, uh, you know, therapists or behavioral interventionists like under nonprofits. But I didn't see a lot of us kind of um, in having our own organizations or companies. Uh, I don't know if you saw kind of the same thing and if that was part of what inspired it too, the fact that there just wasn't a lot of us <laughs> around. So I think there are a couple of things that kind of really affected my journey and kind of creating our own um, company and doing this. The first thing is my dad was big on always having your own. Um, so growing up, that's something that I learned. I always worked for people, but I knew that my ambition and my goal was to create something that was for um, my family. And, you know, and I am religious. So I believe in God. So making sure that whatever I do um, glorifies God and in, in, in total. So that was the first thing. And then the second part was um, working in the field with other companies. I kind of saw that it was a, a huge gap between the quality of services that um, you know, suburban kids would receive versus more so the urban community. Um, I also noticed how they were always pushed away because of the quality of their insurance and the quality of the, the parent or the education that the parents have. So a lot of agencies didn't want to work with these kids and they kind of always got pushed to the side and had to go to um, sometimes not even receive services. So that was my biggest thing. And I do remember vividly speaking to one of um, the owners of a company that I was working with and stating, you know, I really feel like there's an opportunity for me to go in as a Haitian American to really um, try to introduce our culture and our community to ABA therapy and other therapies that are out there. And he laughed, <laughs> literally laughed and said, yeah, there's no way there's not enough money in that. This, this, and that. Wow. So I was like, okay. And when I hear that, that triggers something because if you're telling me that I can't do something, I'm going to make sure it happens. Uh, I will make sure. It <laughs> I, am, I am the exact same way. And my story of why I started Spark and everything is very, very similar. The fact that, like you said, if someone mm -hmm. tells me, no, it's impossible, I'm going to be like, no, I'm going to go do it. <laughs> the minute you tell me I can't exactly. do it, I'm like, ah, no, I think it can be done. And then when we actually do it, they're like, oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, yeah. one thing I've noticed with our community in particular is, um, I will say that I, I love the fact that there has been in recent years, more of a, uh, focus on, on mental health. Like we've become much more aware as a, as a, you know, black community as whole, as a whole of mental health. Autism. It's like, we seem to be like, we know of it, but we don't like know it. We only know kind of like, I think like surface level. And, um, it's interesting because it's, it's known, but there seems to be almost like this mentality of, oh, but it, it's, it's not my kid, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's out there, but it's not my kid, you know? And I've seen this with, with different races, but it, in the black community in particular, this is a big one. And I think, um, what, what I, uh, what I assume, I guess, is part of the issue is, and I think you've, uh, in, I think we and you have talked about this before. I think is there's a hint of like the labeling aspect. And um, I've talked about that on this podcast as well. The, our relationship with the, our history with the medical field, especially here in this country has not been a good one. Um, it's been very, uh, it, it's been, it's been a history of uh, quite frankly, abusive. And so a lot of us kind of remember that. And 
I'll say like, what has been your experience so far kind of working with um, black families and trying to kind of break through that, that uh, stigma that we have? What have been your experiences? I've had uh, different levels of experience, but with patience and kindness, you can be able to reach them. And that's kind of our technique. We try our best to be as patient, be as kind and show and just always tell us, give us a little bit more time. Right. Because I think when um, families in our community hire uh, someone to provide a service, they expect instant change. And it's not realistic. And I try to tell them that before even onboarding. I'm like, listen, the first couple of weeks, maybe even month, you might see an increase of the behaviors because we're placing demands and changing the structure and the routine. And then from there, you're going to see that the behaviors are going to gradually decrease. If for any reason they increase again, let us know and we're going to work through this as a team. So just reassuring and educating on the way, I think that's the best way to reach our community in a more proficient way than you know other communities because they have the resources. They know this stuff. They know the knowledge. They knew it exists. I had one client where they were receiving services back when he was eight years old before ABA therapy was even a thing. They were paying close to $200 an hour because they had the money and the funds to do so. Um, whereas in our community, there's no way. There's no way, you know? And that's a huge thing, too, is that that uh, the resource gap. That's the main reason why I even started Spark was because same reason why you, you notice the same thing, that gap. and. The fact that a lot in our a lot of folks in our community don't even like you said they're not even aware of some of the different uh, resources that are available, especially once you get a diagnosis. Like there's such a fear of the of the actual label, but it's like oh, but but what? Even though I know you don't like the label, but there is so much that can be open to the child once we know what is going on, and um, it's. I want to talk a little bit about like that process of kind of like a little bit further about that process of kind of uh uh what's the i guess i guess desensitizing the 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 family in our community in general to the word autism because i've just i've been in in situations with families where if you even say the a word it's like oh nope it's just instant like shutdown of the conversation and so forth so um, I guess I'd want to talk a little bit, go a little bit deeper also for providers who may be working with family, you know, families in our community. How can they kind of get that conversation started if they suspect that it's autism, if they started working with them and they think, but they don't even know how to kind of bring it up? Because that's been an issue, too. I think with resources like what you're providing, that's a huge start. Um, also, having other providers or individuals that um live with with autism or that live with individuals with autism speak and see how there are opportunities for them to um function within society uh, sometimes the success isn't glorified as much as it should within our community because we hear about so much of the burden that it brings to a caregiver and kids in general sometimes are a burden you know, so it's, <laughs> it might be your resource, it might be your time, it might be your energy, it might be something. But um, if you go into everything with love and with patience and with kindness, I think that's the best way to approach it. And um, I think also, like we were saying, is educating. You have to educate your clients. You have That's kind of within our, our ethics is to provide education and inform them of other services. There might be a limit where I might reach. 
where another provider might be able to tap into there, or maybe they specialize in that type of um, services where I'll just refer over. That's something else. I think as a provider, it's okay to say that you're not the best at something to be able to go for the best that the client needs. That's that's a biggie too, the being able to know like where your scope or range ends and where someone else's can begin. And that kind of also ties into the idea of having a really solid team. You know, regardless of what parts are on that team, that's something else I mentioned in the last podcast is that the team needs to be able to to work together. Your organization is really uh awesome in the sense that you have a lot of those team members kind of in-house. You have speech therapy, you have occupational therapy. So a a family could possibly have their entire, almost their entire team kind of be in-house, which I think is amazing. And we need, we need a lot more of, of that because it can be, I don't know if you've had that experience yet, where it can be difficult if you have to work with other folks that are from other agencies or other uh, providers. I don't know if you've had, I know I've had that experience. I don't know if you have too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's it goes back to just like we were saying with the caregivers, it's knowledge, yeah. right? And the experience of having bad experience with previous providers. You know, it's it's funny you said that cuz my wife and I used to when we first started dating, bump heads 24/7 about ABA versus OT because she just had a terrible experience with ABA. Um so I had to re-educate her on how each provider is different. Um I've experienced bad speech you know, so I could go ahead and think, oh, speech therapy is the worst, but it's not true. It depends on the provider, the person providing services. And see, that's why I like to bring folks like you on here, because it's like I I'm aware of my own experiences and therefore my my bias or where it may lean. But I also know not everyone in the ABA community is like this. Not everyone in the developmental community is like this. Not everyone in the speech or OT community is like this. And so I really think it's important to have um, not just platforms like this where we can all kind of sit and, and talk and really like, you know, digest and, and, and pick apart these kind of different subjects, but also um, having diversity in the providers themselves um, that are out there so that, you know, there are enough, you know, black providers, Hispanic providers, Asian providers. Um, what do you think those of us that are in the field right now, what do you think? are some things that we could do to kind of help, I guess, I guess, encourage um, those who maybe, you know, those who are minorities that may be thinking of coming in or maybe kind of nervous about, or even the the younger ones that are kind of coming up and starting to go into school. What, what are some things that you think we can do to kind of encourage more minorities to kind of come into the field? I think we definitely can create a stronger network. Um, being able to create our own referral system where it's, so it's okay to refer out to another provider within our community. I think also providing um, some type of mentorship program. I think if we can figure out some type of co- countywide mentorship program to get involved in the field um, and give them the opportunity to intern, right? I think that's something in our community that unfortunately we just don't do. And I think that's a big problem. Um, I've noticed in other communities, say intern, we've had several interns come in um, from a local college free of not paying. We don't pay them anything. They just come in to learn um, and to become more aware of what they want to do. I think those are opportunities for in our community to make it more diverse, to be able to make it more um, engaging within one another. If we can kind of change that mindset a little bit and everything doesn't have to be about money, you know? 
Agree a hundred percent. That's kind of how I even got, that was exactly kind of how I got introduced into the field. It started out, um, my master's was, is in mental health counseling and we had to do our required, you know, internship where we got to do a certain amount of like a thousand hours or so. And I picked a children's home society. And I remember I had to jump through a couple of hoops to get in because it wasn't the typical organization that they expect mental health counselors to intern at. But I was able to provide a, a decent enough case for it. And that was when I first got, um, for, first of all, started working with kids in general, but then also got introduced to the idea of neurodiversity and the different, you know, and that's, you know, autism and all these other uh conditions. And that's what kind of got me like, oh, let me start looking. I, I deviate. I went here and there, but I always kind of started centering back to to autism because of that little spark that was put in me because I got exposed to one child during a group, you know, group meeting that was like, you know, on the spectrum. So um, I agree that I think um, you're right. It's not all about money. Everyone thinks, oh, well, it ha you know, I need like a paid internship. You know what? I think if the colleges also and universities kind of opened up those different kinds of or the more diverse organizations, the ones that are out there for internships and even just exposed uh, more, more of the, uh, even the ones that aren't usually associated, like in the psychology field, because unfortunately mental health counselors cannot bill for just autism. <laughs> That's a whole nother issue with me, but um, the, the person has to have a, a di either a dual diagnosis or comorbidity of some other condition anxiety, depression. We can't just bill and say we're we're working with this person because of autism, even if their anxiety and depression is caused because of their autism. Nope, can't do it. So a lot that's a whole section of, you know, a whole field section of the medical field, psychology, that's just completely just cut off from the autism world. And I was like, but it's needed. We we need mental health therapists in the field and they're not getting any exposure. My whole my whole program, there was no mention of autism anywhere in my mental health counseling program. Nowhere. It it's like it's its own little bubble over here and I think it needs to be it needs to be incorporated into more of the other medical field tracks. It needs to be incorporated into, you know, internal medicine. It needs to be incorporated into pediatrics a bit more. It needs to be incorporated into all these other aspects of the of the medical fields and health fields because you know right now it's not it's just it's just kind of there's behavioral and 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 that's it <laughs> kind of thing and I was like uh we're doing such a disservice to the other providers I think by not including them in the conversation I did have a question for you so um something I've been experiencing with some of our clients where they need more than ABA therapy because of their behaviors are not really the function of what's going on um how what would you say to a provider like us that's struggling to really find the mental health support that we need um where it might not need to be increasing dosage of medication it could be another technique um for mental health um especially if it's kind of like a is it are these all mostly kind of like the younger kiddos i'm guessing or is it like all ages yeah around like 7 8 okay. um we consider a little bit more high functioning okay. Um, some of them would probably, I think, uh, it's becoming more and more obvious that, um, the mental health side needs to be addressed a lot more when it comes to autism. Um, yes, there's a lot that deals with behavior. Yes, there's a lot that deals with sensory, but so a lot of our kiddos also, unfortunately have, you know, trauma. Uh, a lot of our kids have, you know, other things like mental, mental life that are going on. 
And so um, this is also something that I think, especially in this area, we kind of have a shortage of, which is mental health providers who really like know about kids and not just kids, but know how to work with autistic kids. That it, that's just across the board kind of hard to find, which is why I think we need to encourage that more in the mental health field. And I think that, you know, mental health can work really. I've, I've worked, I've had, when I worked as a mental health therapist, I had clients who were autistic. I had, I had two that were diagnosed autistic and there was one who, uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. She was about 18 at the time and they had gone through every diagnosis known to man, <laughs> like everything from schizophrenia to borderlines that you name it, they had, they had diagnosed her with it and nothing was working. And then she got to me and because I knew about the symptoms of autism, I'm kind of giving you the reverse example, but, but, um, because I was familiar with the symptoms of autism, I was like, have you thought that maybe it could be, I can't diagnose it, but could it be this? And she was like, huh, didn't think about that. And because, you know, I, we kind of started discussing an avenue that she hadn't thought about. She went on her own and kind of found out, okay, yeah, the situation has been, it was autism and that's what should have been addressed this whole time. Not like that side. So I've seen like the flip side where it was like the mental health side was being addressed. The autism side was not. I also see a lot of the reverse where the autism side is being addressed. The mental aspect of the child is, is not. Um, I think we need to just uh, around here. Yes, there are. Uh, I've worked for, you know, several organizations or nonprofits that do like, you know, more of the, the therapy side work. But again, it comes back to the problem of they're not trained of working with autistic kids. If it was a typical neurotypical kid where they were having, you know, trauma or depression or anxiety or something like that, they would know how to handle it. But because you have this added component of autism, they immediately just go up. Oh, I don't know. And I'm not going to try to know. And I'm out. <laughs> so, and so I wish I could sit there and just be like, oh yeah, you can just go check out this place, this place, this place, and this place. And but unfortunately, I'm like, even if I gave you those places, I don't know if they have anyone who has knowledge of both. And we need more more folks in both fields that have knowledge of both. I think that's where the level up comes from is when you start collaborating with all providers that are all on one journey of helping one child. Um, the mental health part of it is something that I know mm -hmm. that's hugely lacking, at, at least in in our local area, where a lot of parents are just fed up with ABA because they've tried every single provider, they've tried every single technique, and each provider is neglecting the mental health, mental health part of it because per our ethics, it's meant we can't be mentalistic. Um, so that becomes a challenge even for us as an organization. But I will say there are certain types of um, therapies or methods I think it's called acceptance, uh, don't quote me on this, it's ACT, I know that's the acronym, um, where it uses more of the mentalistic approach um, for children that are on the spectrum. Yeah, and I think it's important to kind of uh, have uh, those who are, especially more like those who are in the ABA field, that's, which is kind of the more prominent one right now, to actually kind of speak more on those and understand that, hey, you know, we may not be able to handle every single aspect of, of this child, nor should we, nor should any organization or approach try to. Um, and, and again, it's that, like you said, it's, it's that, it's that need to collaborate and kind of really learn from each other. Like having someone who's experiencing mental health on a team 
even if you're thinking at first, well, I don't think it's really a mental health thing. They may have a, an in or an insight that you wouldn't have never thought of. Um, I know that, like you just said, ABA doesn't really focus on like the, the, the mental side of it. It's almost totally on the behaviors. And that was honestly, full disclosure, that was one of the things that really irked me about ABA. And I think it's because of the fact that I am trained as a mental health counselor. So anytime I heard that, I was like, what do you mean you're only looking at the behaviors? That's like the iceberg thing. It's like the behaviors are here and then there's all this other stuff underneath that you're just going to ignore. So that was that that was a huge issue I had with ABA. But again, it comes back to the fact that where one approach, you know, is um is is not focused on, there's other approaches that can come in and and do focus on that. And when you get all those different parts together, that's when you get a complete team and that's when you can fully like you said, like, and, and really work on everything. There are some things where we may need a nutritionist to come in and help with like the eating side of things. Yes, there may be a sensory thing, a component or a behavioral component or even a mental health component, but it also may just be, we need a nutritionist to come in and talk to the whole family on what foods this child's going to need for, you know, to get the vitamins and everything. So all of it, I think, comes back, like you said, to collaboration. And I'll add into that, too. I think a couple of the major challenges that limits um, ABA to acknowledge the mentalistic side of um, therapy would be, number one, the insurance. Insurance will flag you for anything that you say that states that a child needs to take a break, that they need a breather, or that they're dealing with any emotional regulations, anything like that in our ABA plan. Wow. Um, secondly, what they do. Yeah. And they'll flag us, too, if we uh, state anything that's dealing with academics. So if we're saying teaching them how to write, teaching them their letters, teaching them their numbers. Um, and this is different per insurance. So I'm talking specifically Medicaid. So another thing for a parent, if you're looking at that plan, you're just like, why aren't they focusing on his letters or his numbers? We probably are, but we can't state it in our plan when we're submitting it to the insurance. See, I didn't know that. <laughs> wow. Um, see that that's something that kind of, kind of cat, like makes me look at AB in a different light too, right there. Just knowing that, okay, just as I guess like my, my approach or side, the more kind of developmental naturalistic side has caveats and things that, you know, limit us from accessing insurance. You guys, the ABA side also have things where like, yeah, we can't say this. Otherwise, boom, we're not getting paid. You know, we're not getting paid or they're going to, like you said, flag that particular, uh, that particular one at that. Wow. I did not know that. Wow. See, we're all learning. <laughs> yeah, It's a lot. It's I literally every day I'm learning something new about each insurance because it's so different, you know, and unfortunately, Medicaid has the most restrictions and majority of people in our community have Medicaid. So. Uh, we're kind of stuck there. You know, there's a lot of little systems that need to be broken for us to really get the quality of therapy that we need. So yeah, I, th I think the overall arch amongst all the approaches is that, uh, yeah, the entire way that insurance approaches uh, care and health just needs to be completely re <laughs> revamped and kind of re-examined because we, we, so much has changed from when the, the initial, you know, format of insurance was created and done and so much has been expanded we've learned that so many things beget and connect to each other and flow into each other that you can't just sit there and kind of compartmentalize like all the different like things you can't everything kind of flows together
right. So, um, Christian, we've talked a lot like off and on about the uh, the importance of, of family involvement. Um, I, I know I have plenty of like uh, explanations and time periods. And I've even had uh, parents who've said, I think this came up in another uh, group that we were in talking about like the I guess the success, the success story, so to speak. I think the aspect of the quote unquote success story that I think really needs to be emphasized, though, is how the family's involvement led to that success and how, yes, the providers are a, a huge chunk of it, but the families have to do some level of follow through if there's if the child's going to get the most out of, uh, out of, you know, out of the whatever it is that whatever intervention or um, or, you know, uh, provider is, is in there. Um, how do you think, uh, providers can better kind of involve the family caregivers, uh, daycare staff in this? Cause I know sometimes, I don't know if you've experienced this. I've had some who are gun ho, want to jump in, want to learn everything. And I've had those who kind of want nothing to do, <laughs> to do with it whatsoever. Um, how do you, first of all, like with the ones who are really gun ho, how do you make the most of, of, of that energy? And then for the ones who are kind of more reluctant, how do you kind of, you know, bring them out of that and make them more open? Or how, in your experience, have you kind of worked with families like that or, you know, staff like that? Uh, I think that's something I'm still trying to crack. Um, I've, when we first started, I tried my best with a lot of our families to encourage parent training, to encourage involvement. Um, unfortunately, there's certain individuals and family members that are going through some tough times, right? So mom or dad probably has to work 12-hour shifts, and the child spends a lot of the time with their grandparents or their aunt, or maybe even an older sibling. So that becomes a very difficult for us to provide that parent training. What we try to do is to make sure that we formulate at least group chats where they understand what's going on in the day-to-day activity with their child. Um, also, we encourage them to at least meet once a month with their BCBA so that they can be updated. Um, For parents that kind of fall off the wagon, we create what we call a behavior contract where, okay, if you don't meet these amount of sessions, unfortunately, we're going to have to discharge your child or transfer them to another um, service provider. Um, And technically, that kind of helps, but some of them don't care because there's so many other agencies. If you won't do it, then I'll go to another agency that will. Um, and I think that's where it's becoming very difficult for us to really provide that parent training. So I always now when I onboard um, clients, I make sure that I say, hey, this is the deal. You're going to have a BCBA that provides parent training. You have to meet with them at least once a month. And that's bare minimum for two hours. You can do that if your child's having 30 to 35 hours a week. You know, And as a parent that should care about their child, you should make sure you're available. So I think that's kind of helped us a lot more um, now. Yeah. And I I think it comes to, again, kind of like a a paradigm shift with the families, because aside from like the just the stigma of of, uh, healthcare in general, there's also uh, this this belief that, no, you guys are the providers. You sit and just do this with the child and I don't have to be involved. I think across the board, there needs to be kind of a you know, a paradigm shift with all the different agencies. Cause like you said, if other agencies are still following that same old, like, you know, viewpoint of, you know, parents or, or caregivers are separate, uh, then yeah, it's not going to change because they can always go to someone who will, you know, do that. But um, I think it's important to kind of start 
facilitate. And that again comes down to that whole collaboration thing of us actually talking with each other as a community and as, and you know as providers on all of us being on the same page because yes if it, it, that's a problem i've seen as well where well if you won't do this for me then this organization will and it's like that's still not helping the, <laughs> the child though and then they come back and they're like well this didn't you know my child got worse i'm like well, <laughs> you didn't learn any you didn't learn any skills yourself the ones that I've noticed that have done the, regardless of what the intervention was or the approach, the ones that I've seen have done the best, like the ones who did have those success stories where it was like the child was not talking when we first started working with them. And now they, you know, they have words. I'm thinking of one family I had in particular. It was because the entire family got involved. It was a big uh, um, Hispanic family that were all kind of, it was a bunch of them living in one big house. Everyone wanted to get involved to help this child. The grandparents wanted to get involved. The siblings were super involved. Um, they would sit in. And I think that's another part is um, little things like having the siblings sit in on the sessions. And I know that's like can be like an added like, oh, now we have another kid to deal with. But having the siblings, especially if they're a bit, the older ones that are like old enough to kind of like understand kind of what's happening and what you're doing, having them kind of sit in and and work you know, with the, with the interventionist, with the, the RBT, with whoever it is and learn kind of from what, from mimicking basically the, the adult that's leading, you know, they will then, you know, one, they'll have a better understanding of how to play with their, with their autistic sibling Two, they'll be more likely because they're now learning from modeling. They're more likely to imitate the same skills that you were, that, you know, the person, the adult was doing. And three, you now have someone in the house who is practicing the same things that you were showing and it's not a parent, it's a sibling, you know, or maybe it's a grandmother or it's a, it's a cousin. Um, and I think sometimes providers are scared to bring in the siblings because they're just intimidated by having another, a lot of them have even told me, like, I don't know about the idea of bringing another ch kiddo in there when it's already enough trying to, you know, trying to handle this one. And I was like, well, the sibling might actually be able to help you you know, with the autistic child. <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting you said that about the sibling. I know this is kind of off topic, topic on topic at the same time. Um, our next vision is to um, utilize our nonprofit that we just started called Beyond the Valley, where it supports siblings um, that are with individuals or that live with individuals with disabilities. Um, just because of my own personal experience, I lived through it and I've seen how caring and patient I was and how that helped my sister progress as well. Um, and there come, becomes moments where the sibling might be frustrated and not want to interact with the child or their loved one. And that can become an issue with the growth of the family and create more friction. So just creating a, a, a system or a place where they can feel as if they're supported. That's kind of like our vision. I love the fact that you that you mentioned that. And I was like, oh, we're probably going to need to collaborate on this as well, because that's something I've been thinking about for a while. And um, to the point where it's like it's in my I'm not even thinking about it for 2022, because to me, 2022 is almost like done at this point. But um, next year, one of the things that I really wanted to kind of like work on was that aspect of it. Like I'm starting to create kind of like um online easy to follow kind of like trainings and I wanted to make one for kids kind of explaining autism and that would be aimed at like siblings or peers or friends 
um, of kids who are on the spectrum. So when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that, on the same page there. Awesome. So, yeah, that might be something we collaborate on later. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep, yep. <laughs> So um, I'm also glad that you, it, 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 you know, said, admitted that it's it's a tough thing to kind of deal with is how to kind of get the parents involved. And that's why, um, you know, I hope that providers and parents kind of listen to. I know that there are parents listening to this podcast, actually. And um, I hope they kind of hear that side, too, is that, you know what, we're not doing it because we're trying to annoy you. We're not doing it because, um, you know, as like a, a, a punishment, because we know that you have. We know you have other responsibilities. We're doing it because we, I come from the viewpoint that you, you as a parent want what's best for your child. And so it's like, if, if we all agree that we want what's best for the child, I always start there. We all want to see this child reach their full potential. Okay. What do we have to do as a team? What do each of us have to contribute in order to make sure this child reaches their full potential? And I always kind of bring it back to that, but Yes, I will say that there is even with that, there has still been some families I've worked with where it's like even from that viewpoint, it's like no. <laughs> you know, it it and it's frustrating, but it it does it does happen. But I think getting as many of the family members kind of on board as possible helps a lot. Yeah, and one thing that I do too to to help um with getting a parent on board, I continuously just remind them our goal as far as we do not want to service your child forever. Yes. That means I'm not doing my job correctly. So the goal is to be able to service them to the point where you can fully take over and be able to support them that they the way that they need to be. Um, unfortunately, some parents, they get attached to their therapist, they get attached to the company, and they want a forever friend or a forever family member. Uh, and it, that's where it becomes a little bit tricky. Right. So we understand we build a bond with our clients. They build a bond with us. But when it's time to go, we're giving God thanks and we're happy because that means that you've graduated. You've reached a new level. And I actually mentioned in the last episode that that is a huge like green flag. You want an organization that is knows when, OK, it's who has a goal of I always say my goal is to like not be needed is to like, quote unquote, lose my job. My goal is to get to the point where you can sail this ship without me. And if you, I always tell families, if you come across an organization that does not seem to want to let you go, <laughs> um, that's a huge red flag. Uh, I actually have a family that's kind of dealing, I think is dealing with this right now, where they have been on, the child has been on generalization goals for, I think, like eight or nine months. And I'm just like... And we're getting to the point now where the child's actually starting to develop behaviors they didn't have before because I think they've been there too long and they've just been plateauing. There hasn't been any kind of growth. And the 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 place that this child is at is actually using that as an excuse saying, oh, well, because they have behaviors now, we have to keep them on longer. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, no, <laughs> like, no. Um, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. And I, parents need to pay attention as well. Like, like you said, the behaviors increased in that setting. Maybe it's time to change the setting, but you might not need to change the services, right? You might not need to decrease. Maybe it needs to be a new setting where they need to learn new skills exactly. and be able to use that service that way. You know, exactly. Exactly. Um, before we kind of like, uh, wrap up, uh, Christian, any final things you want to say about Look Up? How can people uh, find you? Uh, 
if you want to put the location, your website, all of that, this is your moment to kind of, you know, go ahead and sound <laughs> off, so to speak. <laughs> so if anyone's interested in any of our services, which is ABA, speech, or OT, and you're in Palm Beach County, we're located um, off of 45th Street, right behind Burger King, off the 95 and JFK. Um, we have our center that's located there. We do provide in-home, in-school, and daycare services. Um, if you want to contact us, you can reach us at uh, www.lookuptherapy.com. Uh, you can go ahead and fill out that form, and that'll go straight to our emails, and someone will probably reach you out to you within 24 hours. And other than that, I would like to say continue to do the best you can and educate yourself um, as much as you can. Surround yourself with positive people and people that are going to feed into you. That's kind of my, my last note. <laughs> Thank you so much, um, Christian. So again, you guys look up uh, www.lookuptherapy.com and I can attest that they do get back to you very quickly because I used that form to contact them initially and it was well within 24 hours. I, I got a response back. So they do monitor that. They will get back to you. Um, and that kind of wraps up this episode. Thank you, Christian, again, for, for coming on board. Thank you for the amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Um, thank you for the great conversation. And I'm here to support Spark on their journey. So, Thank you so much. And for all of you out there, if you guys are interested in um, possibly being on the podcast, if you're a provider and want to be highlighted, if you want to come on and have discussions, if you're an autistic person and you want to come on, please, you know, by all means, hit me up. You can email me at... Um, Angel W A N G E L W at sparkguidance.com. That's spelled S P A R C G U I D A N C E.com. You can also hit me up on my website, www.sparkguidance.com. Same uh, spelling. If you want to find more episodes of this podcast, that is at www.sparkupautism.com. So, same spelling, S P A R C U P, then autism. A-U-T-I-S-M.com. It has all the episodes so far. And if you scroll down to the bottom, you can listen to them on all your favorite platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, all of those. And if you're on Instagram, you can hit me up there at Spark Guidance. So again, thank you guys for joining me. I look forward to our next episode. And until then, be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye. <laughs>